Welcome to the Horizon Search Podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is Colin McWinney, a seasoned entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience and a pivotal figure in generating millions of sales revenue. We unpack what innovation means in organizations, why it's important, and what people get wrong about it. I'll now let Colin share a bit about his background in his own words. Sure, thanks. Colin McQuinney, and I am CEO of a company called Canada Startup, which I've been operating since 2005. Also co-founder of a company called Sales Primer that's been operating for the last few years and a very busy entrepreneur in residence for several accelerators here in Canada supporting the startup world. What does innovation mean to you? Yeah, that's a really good question and a a really good question actually to get started when I talk to people about this, because there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding or different expectations around it. To me, I love just the simple phrase that it is creativity implemented, implemented being the key word. And that, I think, gets the juices flowing as far as what people think it is, because a lot of people think it is about idea generation. The key is that it is implemented and provides value. That's an interesting distinction, because my mind went to ideation when I thought innovation. But you're saying take it one step further, or maybe that's 10 steps further. (laughs) Well, it's certainly one step further. And there's several steps. I think within that step, but I think it is a key learning for a lot of people is that the hard part is not generating ideas. The difficult part is taking that idea and doing a variety of things to it, testing it, modifying it, and then ultimately implementing it so it creates value again. That's the hard part. And that's often where the idea often goes into vapor because they don't want to take it to the next step. I'd like to kind of go back and start it with Canada Startup, if we may. Could you describe what you've been doing with that over the past 15 plus years? At the end of the day, I think where I started helping startups and entrepreneurs is I realized that they were very good at coming up with an innovative concept or idea. Let's just say that. But bringing it to market and actually selling it was a different story. Often, it wasn't their comfort zone. And there was, again, there's a lot of hard work actually to be able to do that. So I think in a nutshell, what I do with Canada Startup is I work with founders in many ways to get them out of the comfort zone. You know, many of them would rather just stay in the lab and work on that product and build the better mousetrap. That to me seems like such an oxymoron, founders who want to stay in their comfort zone. (laughs) Right. But it is true, you know, their comfort zone often is not actually putting that product out into the market and getting that real feedback, testing it. So I think that in a nutshell is what Canada Startup does is that we help them through that process. I want to be different, but I only want to take in the data that I want to receive. Certainly, that's part of it. The other part is... I want to be different, but I don't necessarily want to get out of my comfort zone to make sure that it's different enough for other people so they will pay me for it as well. (laughs) We're going to riff on this. I want to be different, but I don't want to be different. That's right. I want to stay within my own comfort zone. That's a really great way to put it, actually. And, you know, the really exciting thing for us is when we see a founder evolve from that 
and gain a whole lot of other type of confidence, not just in what they know as far as the solution, but also actually them as a person evolving into somebody that is a better communicator, etc. So a more well-rounded entrepreneur. I feel like if you haven't already, you probably could write tomes on this, but how do you help founders innovate in their startup? A lot of it is ultimately putting in a process to help them get it out to the market. And that can be an uncomfortable process ultimately for them again. But it really is putting in a process of being able to take the solution that they've come up with, getting to that MVP or minimum viable product that you can put in front of potential customers, communicating with potential customers and getting again real feedback from them on the perceived value ultimately that that product does for them. So that process in itself is huge, you know, and they have to be ready for the truth and they need to be ready to actually adapt to that and modify or pivot if they need to. So a lot of it is actually process, David, and a lot of it is actually a bit of you're there to help them psychologically as well. And I don't want to understate that. That is a very important part of mentoring and supporting an entrepreneur, especially through the early stages. Do you have any notable examples of innovative startups you've helped on their journey? At this point, ultimately, I think I've worked with over 500 companies. And I mean, the interesting thing is we've gone through so many different eras. You know, I started in the dot-com era. We got into sort of the hardware we got into the software as a service. We're now in AI. So plentiful examples. A couple that come to mind, though, and I really like working with entrepreneurs that are not just trying to develop a solution so other companies can make more money. They have developed a solution that is solving real problems. And that might be socially. They're human-centric in a way. A lot of them right now I'm working with a lot of clean tech firms, ultimately trying to do something about the environmental mess that we're in. So I love that. And just to give you a couple examples, there was one woman that we worked with ultimately that did a school project ultimately, and she was in design, but ended up developing an inflatable vest that provided relief for children with autism. And when you get involved with that, you know, it started with a design, but actually was very applicable. When we started actually talking to parents as part of the customer discovery of the effect that it was having on children, it really starts to begin to affect you that innovation can have such a effect on a variety of different stakeholders. And again, in that case, it really struck me that not only actually was she providing something for the children, but the parents and sort of the family environment changed as well. So that was one. It really strikes you, right? The story. And you probably want to roll up your sleeves and even support that more rather than a solution that is just actually about making more money for everybody. Certainly, that's been good to us as well. But I think as I get older and I can pick and choose a little bit more, I love to support the ventures that are more like that. In clean tech right now, you know, again, we see some really cool stuff. There's one company, you know, derivative from wine making, for instance, is it goes into landfills. It's huge. You know, you don't think about it. What they've done is take that 
And actually, they have a process to develop to develop that and provide it for food developers because it is a healthy alternative to create taste and texture. So you, you learn about this and you go, of course, like there's so many different innovations going on that aren't obvious that I think are really going to make a change. I love that. It's not a zero sum game. Like it's not a limited amount of innovation out there, I believe. And it's always funny when you see the next thing. It's like, of course, like it was right there, but it's limitless. That's exactly right. And a lot of it comes from somebody that's been involved in, they might have been at, you know, involved at school or with their own job. And because of the mindset that they've got, it's, there's a better way to do this. And, you know, that's one of the things I think that we work on a lot is you can work with the individual, but you've got to change the culture of an organization as well to be more innovative, to get people feeling comfortable in looking at the way they're doing things, looking at the way the company is doing things and looking for alternative ways to maybe improve it for different stakeholders. And that's something I love to work on as well, because without that foundation, it's very difficult to create that kind of culture you need for that kind of thinking you mentioned. Well, speaking of very difficult, the first word that popped in my mind when you said changing a culture was impossible. How how do you change a culture of an organization? Yeah, it's a really interesting process. And it starts with actually the individual. Individuals you know, we go through exercises where they realize ultimately that the creativity in them over their lifetime has been beaten out of them. (laughs) And there's a lot of reasons for that. But education's one, you know, the need to fit in is another and people don't necessarily like change if they've developed processes they're comfortable with. It's very difficult to pull them away from that. So the very first thing, David, is getting them to sell to realize ultimately that they really are their own worst self filters in a way for create. So first of all, there needs to be a recognition of that. And then there are ways and exercises to where they would feel more comfortable being more creative. One of them certainly is when an organization takes the time to describe to individuals the impact that their work has on the company, other staff, customers, other stakeholders, that's very empowering and very motivating for folks, actually. We often, we don't spend enough time on that. And when they realize that, and then you provide ultimately a visualization of how, again, their job impacts a variety of different things. Now they've got the context ultimately to start thinking about their day-to-day job and maybe how to improve that because they see the impact it can have. So that to me is critical. And when when we've seen that implemented in, in firms, even at a small scale, it's incredible actually what happens. One organization said, the winds of change are blowing after a week here. And I love to hear that because you can almost walk into a company and physically feel that. I don't know if you know what I mean, but you can hear a buzz as opposed to everybody working in their own little silo. So there's that. And obviously, you need senior support that people can go out. There is time and resources available for them to test new ideas. And there's a process in place for them to bring new ideas to, you know, senior decision 
makers in a way that it'll be acknowledged, listened to, and hopefully if it meets certain things, can be tested. Tapping into purpose is what I'm hearing, both in changing the culture, but also going back to what you said about money's nice, but it's really seeing people who are helping the world or helping people that really gets you up in the morning. Absolutely. It's empowering people and helping their self-confidence is, I think, one of the things that really turns me on. Because when you have that, you have unlimited options then at that point, right? They take it in directions that you would never imagine after first meeting them. So I think for, you know, getting back to the topic today, that confidence and that ability to understand that you can make that effect. The the last thing I want to say here about that is explaining to individuals that innovation is not this enormous change that you often hear about this paradigm shift it has to be you know this big idea most innovations are incremental positive changes that you can affect short term and when individuals understand that it actually takes the pressure off them a little bit because they now believe well i can have an effect on that i you know i don't need to be intimidated by what i thought it was I'm very comfortable now with the idea of what it is. And magic starts to happen at that point that I've seen. That's great to hear. There is a lady I had on a month or two ago that was a consultant for BCG in Europe and was working with the United Nations in Africa with like a food delivery program after disasters. And she felt that her work was not fruitless, but she didn't feel like she made as big of an impact as she wanted. And then she found out, I believe after like five years, that it was one of the most successful programs that they'd ever run. It was after she'd moved on, but then she had this epiphany where the kind of rate of change in those types of projects is much different than like, oh, I flipped a switch and all of a sudden everything's different. So that was uh, really interesting to hear. Right. Yeah. And you know what that touches upon, David, I think is a really key part of innovation as well, is you've got to test the idea, but you've also got to put metrics and parameters in place on how you're measuring success. What is success ultimately in whatever the innovative idea is? So in that case, it was interesting because she almost found after the fact, but I think Ultimately, as part of whether you want to call it a pilot, for instance, or however you're testing your idea, you need to understand and put in place what is actually success? What's the definition of success to this to where we are now pretty encouraged that this is worth putting more time, money, resources, etc. into? Yeah, very critical step. And that I think comes from wisdom. And it could be borrowed wisdom from a mentor or advisor. And that's perhaps part of the trade-off with being a pioneer is you don't necessarily have that wisdom. Like she's very much forging a new path that others will learn from, but that's kind of the loneliness of being first, I suppose. (laughs) Well, it can be good and bad. Sometimes, you know, I I use this word lightly, but ignorance can be bliss in a sense for a lot of entrepreneurs because nobody's telling them what the barriers are. So they go into it with a very positive sort of impression of this, but certainly having a mentor to maybe steer you along that journey can be helpful as well. Yeah, it's interesting how you have to kind of piece that together yourself through intuition and some trials and errors that might be in a different industry that you then take and repurpose into your current endeavor. It just, it's such a multivariate problem. 
that's it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. Well, it is. And I think, again, one of the keys is that you have to have some comfort level with the unknown, which is very difficult for a lot of people, right? But you have to get comfortable with that because certainly at the beginning of the journey, you're not sure where this is going. And it's exciting for some and it's very unpleasant for others. Yeah, yeah. My mind went to like this Looney Tune cartoon kind of scene when you said being comfortable with the unknown. I was thinking of someone sitting in on a job interview, just telling the interviewer, you need to be comfortable with the unknown. Like, Just hire me and see what happens. Well, sure. I mean, it's funny because we help companies with recruiting. And one of the interesting lines of questioning for people is that, have you ever worked for a startup? Do you know what this environment is like? And really digging into that with them because not just for the founder, but that early staff that they bring in needs to be comfortable with it as well. So yeah, a very important piece to it. It is a different kettle of fish for sure. Like since starting Horizon Search, I have much more respect for entrepreneurs. Like I used to cross my T's and dot my I's in my own kind of domain. So I was a, a tour guide in Japan. And when I first joined the company, I wanted to just impact as much as possible. And I noticed that like there's a little typo on the website and I wanted to be helpful and point that out. And now I realize I would act differently now where I just like be appreciative of everything that they're doing instead of pointing out like, oh, you overlooked this, you overlooked that. It's like you're juggling 20 different things at any given time, like in a hurricane. (laughs) Well, that's it. And, you know, one of the things, you know, brainstorming obviously is this overused term. But I mean, at some point, you've got to get together with colleagues and generate ideas and talk about them. But that self-filtering, that filtering process coming in too early is one of the biggest problems with this is that when people see that their ideas are going to get shot down immediately and that it just stymies that up, obviously. So creating that environment, actually, of because most creative ideas come from another idea and you're building upon those, right? But you're not going to start unless ultimately people feel comfortable. So again, you know, it's interesting. There's a Japanese term and I'm not going to even try to pronounce it, but It's called Wagaya or something like that. And it is about the noise in this sort of spirit and this sort of rumble in an office where people are coming together and really challenging each other in a positive way with the whole hope of improving something that's going on. I love that. I love that vibe when I come into an office like that. And, you know, and what they've been able to do is take the personal out of it. I'm not challenging you personally. I'm just challenging the idea in a way so we can actually get to a point where this is something that's really going to work. And I think people, when they're comfortable with that, love to work in that type of culture, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting how sometimes we tend to identify with our ideas and want to have ownership over them, unaware that we're influenced at least subconsciously and likely consciously as well. And that's how we are. We're we're a massive organism, 8 billion parts. (laughs) And even more than that, if you consider history and everything else. But it's interesting how you can get in your own way, the more that you want your name attached to this super novel, in quotation marks, super successful idea. And yet, if you were to just step back, sometimes you can actually allow it to grow into that great thing that you wanted. Well, that's to us, you know, we do some leadership work as well. To me, that is the main 
next step is that somebody needs to be able to suppress their ego and begin giving credit ultimately to their team. That's who empowered them. And it's a big step for a lot of folks, right? But as we say, you're not to be the main performer on the stage. You're to set the stage for the other performers. And that, to me, it really, again, sets up the culture of innovation in a sense, because that's where the great ideas are going to come from. Right. You can't really expect them. It's just you're creating the higher probability scenario for them to emerge. Exactly. So you've only worked with 500 startups. <laughs> I'm wondering, over this time from the dot-com bubble, the analog to digital transition, and now from it looks like into the generative AI transition, have you seen any big changes in entrepreneurship, like how you start a startup or like the culture of a startup? That's a great question because ultimately, again, I find myself coming back to basics all the time. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of different kinds of things that go on, different descriptions of businesses and so on and so forth, David. But I think ultimately bringing people back to the basics that we talked about ultimately, which is you have got to go through a process ultimately to test this. I, you know, the one thing I think ultimately that has changed a little bit is that one of the things we were seeing early on were that people were innovating a product, you know, building something without doing any kind of market research at all. And then hoping that forcing the product on the market would work. I think people are getting a little bit more cognizant of the fact that they need to do more market research first before they put too much time into the building, if you know what I mean. Because, you know, one of the most difficult things in the world, even though your product might be better, if the market isn't ready for it or does not really have an incentive to change, you're going to have a long road ahead of you. So you've really got to be careful of that. I think that's changed a little bit. But, you know, not to sound too boring, but I think it's always bringing entrepreneurs back to basics, ultimately, on the kinds of business skills they need to develop to be successful. And hard work is one of them. <laughs> you know, we're all trying to find these ways to skip steps, ultimately. And there's a lot and I don't like that culture, in a sense, because I think there is a lot of roll up your sleep hard work that needs to get done. And I think that's, you know, all I always find I need to come back to that. That's interesting. When you said sometimes you could have the right product at the wrong time or the market's just not ready, there's not a real need to change processes or something like that. I was thinking, what a tragedy, because there's so many steps involved with just getting it to that right product that could be great in five or 10 years. And I was wondering, perhaps there's a strategy on the other side of that where you could modularize your product and actually pave the road for adoption. Have you seen that at all? Well, it's a great question. And it's a really, really big thing that we work on, which is often what we're finding we have to do is stop the founders from developing. And to say good enough right now is good enough, meaning you've got to get something out there to begin testing the market and ultimately and for, you know, for two reasons. One is just actually to see if your assumptions around the value, the perceived value of that to that particular target customer is valid, that they're going to give you that feedback and ultimately you can charge pricing for it, et cetera. 
The other thing, though, is that a very good way ultimately to create a market for yourself is to start small because it's an easier decision. You're making it an easier decision for the decision maker. If it's a smaller decision, it's going to create less change within the company, for instance. You know, it's more of a segue into now that you've developed, you know, a place in the company, actually, they're using something as some part of your solution, it's much easier now that you have the relationship to grow that solution within it. And we're finding, David, that that is a very big strategy now for folks because the thinking was, well, I can solve a lot of their problems. Why don't I put everything in front of them? Why wouldn't they want that? The problem is, again, bigger price tag and big change, ultimately. And very often, you're pushing the customer away because it's too big of a decision to make. So getting back to your question, I think starting with a module of some sort, a smaller piece of the solution, we're seeing is uh, has a lot more success. It sounds also like you were talking a little bit about entrepreneurship as opposed to what I would understand to be entrepreneurship, like in the startup world. I assume there's a lot of overlap, but what are some of the differences there? So we work with not just actually organizations in business, but also public organizations, municipalities, for instance, that type of thing. They are understanding now to to keep up with the change and the increasing demands of the stakeholders that they need to create an intrapreneurial culture and really actually getting out of their own way for innovation. So what you're often seeing now is that they're creating these separate sort of pods within the organization that they staff and resource that get them out of the bureaucracy and the day-to-day sort of things that might suppress that and ultimately that they are generating innovations for the firm. So you're starting to see that more. But getting back to ultimately what I was saying earlier, we do a lot of training just with the staff on how to think about innovation as far as your own job is concerned on a day-to-day basis. And once you create that culture and start recognizing some of them happening and start celebrating it, actually, you start seeing a bit more of an entrepreneurial culture come through in waves, which is really, really cool. That does sound interesting. Going back to your couple decades long career here, I was just curious, there's a lot of excitement, it seems now with the rate of change. You know, there was cryptocurrency and NFTs for a moment there. Now it's generative AI, who knows what's coming next. Is this buzz in the air similar to what was going on in the dot-com bubble? Or would you say it's more intense? Well, we definitely have recency bias. <laughs> yeah, that's why I you asked. Know, for sure. But I think, to be honest with you, I mean, listen, certainly I've seen, you know, there's always buzz and that goes along with something innovative like this. And you think it's a paradigm shift. I think artificial intelligence, though, is something different. You know, and we could probably have a two-hour conversation on this. But, you know, ultimately, I'm seeing it being adapted almost in every one of our clients right now to a certain degree. They're either using it for their own purposes internally, or they've adapted their technology to use it. I think we're just scratching the surface now. And certainly some of the things that I'm hearing and seeing that's on the horizon, I think, David, is going to be very much a paradigm shift, which will help us with innovation in a way where we can crunch data at such a speed 
And we've already seen it, for instance, with the vaccines that came out, etc. So there's a lot of good stuff to it. I think how to actually manage it from a human resource point of view is going to be very challenging. So I think that the hype is real. And I think when you start seeing the heads of organizations that are leading AI technology development come out and say, we need to be very careful here, I think we have to listen to that. Yeah. I've heard a few people say this is like the internet on steroids. Like when the internet first came out, you said something that reminded me of that. When like you're seeing it everywhere, you're seeing every company adopt it very much like I'll have to get websites and this and that back in the day. So that's interesting to hear. So I just got this book, The Startup Owner's Manual. I assume you've heard of it, perhaps even read it. I was curious, do you have any book recommendations off the top of your head that like your top definitely read this if you're interested in entrepreneurship or innovation? Well, yeah, there's some. And certainly I can send you a list that we recommend. But I really like things like the Lean Startup simply because the Lean Startup and the message there is this message of being nimble. You know, you don't have to keep developing, you know, the perfect solution. There is no perfect solution. By starting lean and being nimble and being able to test, get feedback, modify, refine, that to me, I think, is one of the greatest lessons I certainly learned and try to actually bring that into the companies that we work with all the time. It's really a key because as you said, you know, in the previous question, change is absolutely accelerating right now. So how else can you survive as a business right now unless you're lean, you're nimble, and you're able to certainly put out something that you stick with, but you've got to be reactive. And I think we saw that with the pandemic, right? I mean, ultimately, companies needed to turn on the dime. And the ones that were able to do it quickly, actually, many of them were able to pivot and take advantage of changing client needs, for instance. Well... Is there anything that we haven't touched on that, that you really <laughs> want to touch on regarding innovation? Again, I think just the final emphatic point, ultimately, that I would like to make, if you run a company out there and you've got staff or even just work in a team, I think that taking the time to have people understand that the impact that they can make in their job, right? They get out of the day-to-day, -day, you know, working in the cubicle, so on and so forth. If they get into that rut, they're automatically probably not going to be motivated to think how to improve it. And then they're fearful of change at the same time because they develop these habits so strongly, right? I think empowering people again with the knowledge of the impact that they do and can have on people and really actually then explaining that innovation can be incremental and in small steps. I think, well, I know I've seen just that change, David, that that attention that you pay to employees ultimately and really bringing them in on how this whole thing works and their part in it. Not for all people, but for the ones that actually get it, you see some pretty incredible things, actually. And it's the frontline people working with customers, working with processes every day that are going to be right there with this can be improved ultimately and can have a major impact on people. So I think it's a really important message and 
I don't think a lot of companies take that kind of time that they need to, to be able to do that. So that's what I would like to leave people with. Duly noted. Sounds like you have the best job in the world. I love it. I mean, again, one of my, when I was graduating from university, my worst fear was thinking about doing the same thing over and over again all my life. So I've been able to actually find something that is the opposite of that. Yeah, it's a driving force. I'm a learner and I'm always learning. And I love working with young people as well because you keep abreast of all different types of attitudes, opinions, what's affecting them, so on and so forth, which I think is incredibly important for me as a constant learner. Great. Well, thank you, Colin, for speaking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. This is fun. If I could do it again, I'm open. Well, I'll take you up on that. We'll be in touch. Take care. Thanks very much for the time. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. Our next guest is Sean Stimson, CEO of Mitten Fluid Power Corporation, a leading provider of hydraulic, pneumatic, and hose and fitting solutions. From a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch to various leadership roles at Morgan Stanley and U.S. Trust, Sean has a proven track record of instilling a culture of growth and achievement across the financial industry. He has a lot of wisdom to impart for aspiring and current leaders alike. If that sounds like you, tune in to part one of this multi-part episode. Until then, eyes on the horizon. Eyes on the horizon.